This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, May 5th, 2022. I'm Kyle Callums. And I'm Timothy Dennis. Thanks for being with us on this wet Thursday. This is your public radio station, KUAF 91.3 FM. Ahead today, Opera Fayetteville is back on stage Saturday after gathering great talent from Michigan, Cleveland, Brooklyn, Boston, Maryland, New York, and Fayetteville for a production that's part of Artisphere. We'll hear from the cast in song and conversation later this hour. First, a new study conducted by researchers at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences finds black Arkansans who report experiencing racial discrimination in the criminal justice system also experience higher levels of hesitancy when it comes to taking a COVID-19 vaccine. The results of the study can be found in the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities. Yesterday, we called Dr. Don Willis, Ph.D., a researcher and assistant professor in the UAMS Office of Community Health and Research, to find out more about this study. What caught my attention early in the pandemic was a lot of research was consistently finding that Black Americans had higher levels of vaccine hesitancy. And often what they would do is sort of give a hint or suggestion that they thought this could be related to racism. So, um, you know, they might mention past historical examples of medical racism, but um, almost none of those studies actually looked empirically at the link between um, experiences of people alive today and how those experiences with racism might be shaping their attitudes. I think the the sort of knee-jerk thing was with Tuskegee and, and, and all these other horrible incidents in the past. But what this study finds is, again, unfortunately, we're talking about current present-day racism, specifically with a couple of institutions that, you know, are, are predominant in our lives, uh, law enforcement and the court system. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we felt it was really important to um, to make it clear that, you know, historical racism and obviously matters, but it's people's experiences, people that are alive today uh, and their experiences with racism uh, still matter. So, yeah, that's that's correct. I mean, I think there can be a um, if there's overemphasis on past histories of, of racism, we can forget that these experiences are ongoing and still a problem today. And a problem to the tune that the study found um, those who had experienced discrimination with police or in the criminal justice system were 161 percent more likely to be vaccine hesitant. That's a staggering number. Yeah. Um, you know, we felt it was a, we didn't know the extent to which this would be shaping people's feelings about the vaccine, but, um, yeah, so more than two and a half times, uh, the odds of hesitancy for black individuals who had experienced racial discrimination with police or in courts. And, you mentioned that um, our our finding is specific to discrimination in police and in courts, and that was the other thing that we felt was an important takeaway is that um, there were some pre- prior studies that had looked at 
experiences of racism within medical institutions. Um, but I think one takeaway from our findings is that when we're thinking about public health campaigns for vaccination, we might need to be thinking about racism across many different social institutions. Right. I mean, there's the micro here, right? I mean, that relates specifically to vaccine hesitancy, but there's the macro. You pull out and how uh, how dangerous and how um, problematic racism is to public health across months, years, and decades. This is a a major long-lasting uh, effect. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and our study is um, kind of just, I would say, kind of a start to peeling back on and trying to understand uh, how racism can influence attitudes towards vaccination. Um, we think it, you know, with our study, we've looked at kind of one indicator, which is the interpersonal level of racism in terms of racial discrimination. But um, it would be really important for future research, and, and we're considering this as well, to start looking at indicators of structural racism and how those might be shaping vaccine hesitancy uh, in more aggregate yeah, as you mentioned, this is sort of a start, but that's important, right? I mean, when you can, when you're thinking about an overwhelming challenge uh, of racism and systemic racism, you have to you have to start somewhere. I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is going to be yeah, opening absolutely. to a lot of people who look like me that go, oh, you know, you, we have to be reminded sometimes of this, as 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 odd as that sounds. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. And, um, you know, another motivation for the study is that uh, given the early reports of differences in vaccine hesitancy, there was some response to those findings that played into a sort of victim blaming and scapegoating narrative uh, rather than attempting to understand reasons why hesitancy might be justified and reasonable among black populations. So we think that um, our study kind of adds that context where uh, it's, we're not just reporting the differences, but attempting to understand uh, among black individuals what accounts for variation among them. And that was the other key thing is that while Understanding disparities is really important. If we're constantly doing sort of this racially comparative research where we compare black vaccine, black uh, individuals' attitudes of vaccine hesitancy to white individuals' attitudes of hesitancy, we kind of implicitly cast the, the levels of hesitancy among white people as normal. So uh, we thought it was really important to just look at variation among black adults themselves uh, to understand that there is a diversity of experiences and feelings towards the vaccine among black adults. And that's really critical to understand as well.
you know, nearly half of the black adults that were in our survey were not hesitant at all towards COVID-19 vaccines. I'm wondering what you would like lay people like me, not PhDs, not professors, not doctors, not medical people, uh, to, to be able to do with this, this study and this start of under, further understanding the relationship between racism and, and public health. Well, I think, you know, on the most basic level, I'd like folks to just understand that racism is a public health problem um, and it's making uh, public health efforts such as vaccination uh, more difficult. And, you know, there's a whole other body of literature that's really clear and demonstrates that racism directly impacts people's health. So we're, we're adding something in the sense that uh, we're now finding it, it, it can also drive, you know, differences in attitudes towards vaccination. So um, I think that for the general population to just understand that many individuals who are vaccine hesitant may have justifiable and reasonable uh, reasons for having that feeling towards the vaccine. Um, So it's important if you're talking to someone, maybe a family member or friend who is vaccine hesitant to, um, to to try to be understanding and try to uh, figure out where they're coming from, what experiences might've led to, the way that they perceive the vaccine. Um, And, you know, like I said, this is a a study on looking at the interpersonal, uh, you know, level of racism, but I hope that it will spark some thoughts among individuals uh, to begin thinking about how structural racism is impacting health and, and health disparities as well. You know, that's me as an academic doing my best to to think about, um, you know, how to make sense of it uh, for the general public, but uh, still coming back a bit to, you know, that this matters, I think, on a structural level as well. Dr. Don Willis, Ph.D., is a researcher and assistant professor in the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Office of Community Health and Research. We have a link to this report. You can find it at OzarksAtLarge.com. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, presenting Little River Band in concert at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs on Saturday, May 7th. A limited number of reserved seat tickets are now available online at tickets.thundertix.com. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals 2022 season has begun at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale. The latest news and information available online at nwanaturals.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The Ozark Arts Council and North Ark Drama present The Prisoner of Second Avenue, performed at the historic Lyric Theater in Harrison, today through Sunday. When Mel Edison loses his high-paying job, it's just the beginning of a very bad day, and it gets worse. For tickets and information, you can visit ozarkartscouncil.org. Have you ever been to the historic Lyric Theater? I actually have not. It's pretty cool.
Uh, also cool, the Outrageous Parade. It's the annual kickoff to the May Festival of the Arts in Eureka Springs. It's set for Saturday. Music, performances, parade, floats, prizes for costumes for performances and floats. For more, EurekaSpringsChamber.com. Another festival taking place this weekend. The Hispanic Women's Organization of Arkansas is hosting its 24th annual Cinco de Mayo Festival. It takes place Saturday from noon to 7 p.m. at the Jones Center in Springdale. It's rich in tradition, and this festive celebration reflects the organization's motto, which is celebrating education, culture, and community. Proceeds from the festival benefit the HWOA Scholarship Fund. For more, you can visit hwoa.org. And the Friends of the Fort Smith Public Library will hold their annual Mostly Fiction Used Book Sale Saturday from 10 until 5, Sunday from 1 until 5. For more information on this or any of the Fort Smith Public Library programs or events, fortsmithlibrary.org or 793-0229. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. I'm Paul Gatling. Today we've got an interview with Jonathan Bricker, who is a commercial banker in Rogers for Arvest Bank. Earlier this year... Bricker was elected chairman of the nonprofit Arkansas District Export Council. That's a group that works to facilitate the development of an effective export assistance network within Arkansas. Also on the program, we have first quarter home sales numbers from Benton and Washington counties. And a Jonesboro developer expands on a long-standing Northwest Arkansas partnership with Starbucks. Those stories and more are on the way next on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Jonathan Bricker, a banker with Arvest Bank and Rogers, began his finance career working as an international business development representative. The economic development side of the business stuck with him, and now he handles commercial business with a focus on export opportunities. As the new chairman of the Arkansas District Export Council, Bricker hopes to bring on new members and help new and longtime partners grow their business overseas. Bricker spoke recently with Roby Brock to discuss. Joining me now is Jonathan Bricker. He is a banker with Arvest Bank. He is also the chairman of the Arkansas District Export Council. Jonathan, good to see you again. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Let's talk about the ADEC, the Arkansas District Export Council, of which you are the chairman uh, of. What is that organization and what's your charge as chairman? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, thank you for helping to bring awareness to us as well. So the Arkansas District Export Council is a private nonprofit organization, and we bring together international business people 
who provide support, advice, and assistance to Arkansas-based companies interested in either entering into the international market uh, via exports, or if they're currently already exporting, helping them improve their processes and mitigating their risk at the same time. We, uh, we consist of 29 members right now, and we have each been appointed by the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Um, and we work closely with the Department of Commerce, the Arkansas Economic Development Commission, the Arkansas World Trade Center, um, and just a handful of government entities uh, to pull our resources to help Arkansas. How did you get interested in the export business? How did, how did, what was your connection to getting into all of this? Sure. So uh, when I was brought on at Arvest Bank, I was hired in as the International Business Development Representative. Uh, and then I just, you know, uh, economic development really kind of started sticking with me and on the international side. And Arvest is the only Arkansas-based bank that has international services. Uh, then I moved to Northwest Arkansas, and now I'm a commercial lender with the bank with a focus on international businesses. What do you find trips people up the most about the exporting business and how they explore their options? Sure. So, you know, most of the exporting starts on the small, medium-sized companies by an unsolicited order. So they'll be sitting there, the, they'll be at work, and then all of a sudden they'll get an order from Canada or Mexico. And they're going to be kind of taken back and say, wow, how do we do this? So that's kind of where we want to bring awareness to our Arkansas companies that we can be a resource for you and, and help you with this. But uh, what do we... I guess maybe what are we seeing in this area right now? You got supply chain issues. You've got interest in a lot of people growing more U.S. manufacturing, which could lead to more exports. What are some of the big issues that the ADEC is is grappling with right now for its members? Sure. So in 2020, Arkansas companies exported about five billion dollars worth of goods, which isn't too shabby, but it's not great either given the fact that that is down almost 17% since 2019. And then if you look back up along a five-year period, it's down another almost 17% from that. So really, we have some work cut out for us to increase the exports from our state. Any slowdown that you're seeing? I mean, you've referenced those statistics right there, but what are you hearing from some of the members there? Um, I mean, and is there a push for new membership to try to recruit more people to look at exporting as an opportunity? What, what do you think will happen over the next, say, two to three years? Sure, absolutely. You know, and as far as the District Export Council goes, we, we can bring on new members every two years, but we do have some associates and friends of the District Export Council that each has their own international expertise. Um, so anything from attorneys to entrepreneurs to CEOs, but yes, we need to focus on bringing in some agricultural uh, representation, um, seeing as you know that's one of our top, top exports, as well as aircraft. Uh, those are the top two exports out of the state of Arkansas. And the defense industry is getting up in there too, so uh, as well. Uh, 
Absolutely. So say I'm a small to medium-sized business. I've got some interest in uh, getting into the export field here. Where do I begin in terms of contacting the ADEC or is there some other starting point that I should look to? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so you can reach out to us directly on our website of the Arkansas District Export Council, but you could also utilize the AEDC, the Arkansas Economic Development Commission that we work very closely with to form that introduction and for us to have the conversation of how we might be able to help you going forward. And that is Jonathan Bricker of Rogers, the new chairman of the Arkansas District Export Council. You can learn more online at exportarkansas.org. And we've got that interview with Bricker over on our sister website at talkbusiness.net. Home sales in Benton and Washington counties are up nearly 12% through the first quarter of 2022. According to the Northwest Arkansas Board of Realtors, there were 2,639 homes sold through March this year in the two-county area. That's up from 2,358 during the same period last year. The big number, though, is the combined sales volume of those home sales is up nearly 37% to just under $960 million. That's just through the first three months of the year. Jonesboro developer Haig Brown is planning a Starbucks location along southbound Interstate 49 at the Elm Springs Road exit in Springdale. The two companies have partnered on seven locations in northwest Arkansas since 2015. This will be the second Starbucks in Springdale. And the e-commerce marketing agency Bold Strategies in Rogers has secured $2.3 million in funding from a California firm. Bold Strategies founder and CEO Alan Peretz said the funding from Montage Capital will aid the company's growth, specifically in strategic hiring, marketing, and further development of the company's proprietary e-commerce dashboard. You can find all those stories and others at nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can follow our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. We're in the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Timothy, is there any music this weekend? There's almost too much music. Last weekend, we had two music festivals in the listening area. This weekend, it's the start of another. It's May. It's Artisphere. Oh, oh, yeah. That's going to be everywhere. And there's a lot of music happening this weekend as part of Artisphere. We'll we'll get to that in due time. But tonight is actually Cinco de Mayo. So there will be plenty of music with that. There will be plenty of music with that as well. You can find a more complete list at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. But the one show tonight I will tell you about... The Admiral Funk Brass Band is going to be at Chelsea's in Eureka Springs. They are a Tennessee-based brass band, and they're really, really good. Cover for that show is $10. That gets underway at 8 o'clock tonight. Again, that's at Chelsea's in Eureka Springs. All right. Tomorrow, there is music happening all over Fayetteville as part of Artisphere. As part of Trail Mix, 
which is happening around Walton Arts Center this year. Mm-hmm. They're going to have Dandelion Hearts, Papa Rap, Rainy Arbo and Daisy Mayhem, and much more. Ooh, that'll be fun. Trail Mix gets started about 5 o'clock again. That's at Walton Arts Center in Fayetteville. Up on Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, as part of Artisphere, Los Valeros will perform. They're asking for $12 for that show. That gets underway at 6.30 Friday night in Fayetteville. And then there are other things happening as part of Artisphere. You can find more at artisphereFestival.org. More music besides Artisphere happening in Fayetteville tomorrow night. Roots HQ is going to have Nashville-based indie folk singer-songwriter Aaron Ray at mm. Geisinger Music House. Goodness, there's a lot. Oh, wow. Aaron will be joined on that bill by Logan Ledger. Uh, tickets for that show start at $10. That gets underway at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at the Roots HQ at Geisinger Music House in downtown Fayetteville. George is in Fayetteville tomorrow night for their main show. It's going to feature Opal Agafia and the Sweet Nothings and Mountain Sprout. Mm. Should be a really good show. Tickets are $10 in advance. They go up to $12 tomorrow. That gets underway at 9.30 tomorrow night again at George's in Fayetteville. Another show happening in Fayetteville, a show that I think I know someone is going to. <laughs> Jason Isbell and the 400 unit are going to be at JJ's Live. I will be there, yes. I have seen him as an opening act when he had just a few minutes to perform. I've never seen a full set from him. I, I'm not jealous at all, Kyle. I'm not jealous at all. <laughs> there are only a few tickets left. They probably won't be any left if you wait until tomorrow to get right. tickets. Tickets are $60. If you're going to the show, you must provide proof of full vaccination no negative COVID tests will be accepted in lieu of vaccination cards. Just show that card. That show gets underway at 7.30 tomorrow night. Again, that is at JJ's Live in North Fayetteville. Moving on. It's time for Rail Yard Live to get back underway. Yeah, it is. Their first show of the year. Also being presented in partnership with Artisphere. They are featuring the Cape Brothers and Handshake Saints. Standing strong in the storm. And if you look at the Rail Yard Live website, they got music now until the fall. It's not every night, of course, but it seems yeah. like it. Yeah, and then Saturday night, they're going to have Funk Factory on stage. Both shows, Friday and Saturday night, start at 8 o'clock. Again, that is happening at Butterfield Stage in downtown Rogers. Happening over in Eureka Springs tomorrow night, God Hold Brewing is going to have local songwriter Sean Harrison in their beer garden. Oh, He's That's a great cool. guy. Yeah. He's a great yeah. guy. Merle says I just need to get through December. Dylan's answers in the wind they do blow. Mr. Cash had so many songs. I that set gets underway at 5 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at God Hold Brewing in York Springs. There's a lot more Friday music happening. Not nearly enough time to talk about it. Again, OzarksAtLarge.com. Moving on to Saturday, Nomads, the OG Nomads, oh. South Fayville, is having music again. They have a show that they've billed as the Rap Rock Show. It's filled with local hip-hop, a little bit of emo, featuring acts like The Dry Line, Sam Price, Mayday, Reno Mix, Bobby Williams, and more. That gets underway at 8 o'clock. Saturday at Nomads in South Fayetteville. Also happening in Fayetteville Saturday night, Smoke and Barrel Tavern 
is going to have Adam Fawcett in the Spectral class right. and Jess Harp on stage. It is an album release show for Jess Harp. Cover for that show is $10. That gets underway at 8 o'clock Saturday night, again at Smoke and Barrel in Fayetteville. And just to let you know, Adam Fawcett is scheduled to be the next guest on the lunch hour here at KUAF. That's Stay tuned exciting. for that. More music in Fayetteville Saturday night. Prairie Street Live is going to have an alternative indie show uh, featuring Washita Dune and Kitchen Slug. Kitchen Slug, again, they're kind of an alternative indie rock band from the Tulsa area. Cover for that show is $12. That gets underway at 6 o'clock Saturday night, again at Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. Happening up in Bentonville, Fred's Hickory Inn is going to have Candy Lee on their patio. I got a bird feeder in my yard. I keep it filled up with seed. It attracts all the finches and chickadees, because I want beauty. Candy, I've been following her progression through uh, nursing school. Yeah, she's almost done. She's almost done. Yeah, way to go, Candy. That gets underway at 7 o'clock Saturday night, again at Fred's Hickory Inn in Bentonville. Chelsea's over in Eureka Springs Saturday night is going to have Pretend Friend on stage. They're a bluegrass band from Kansas. Baby, please me Better than apple pie Better than morning light That gets underway at 9 o'clock Saturday night, again at Chelsea's in Eureka Springs. Also in Eureka Springs Saturday, God Hold Brewing is going to have Statehouse Electric on stage. Mm -hmm. Great local three- to four-piece band. That gets underway at 6 o'clock Saturday, again, that's at God Hold Brewing in Eureka Springs. And down in Winslow Saturday night, Ozark Folkways is going to have an outdoor concert with Shannon Morris and Brad Helms. Asking for $10 for the musicians and for Folkways at that show. That gets underway at 6 o'clock Saturday again at Ozark Folkways in Winslow. And then jumping ahead to next Wednesday, Route 358 is going to be at Core Brewing in Springdale. Perfect. Uh, that show is going to happen outside, uh, you know, outside the tap room. Uh, it gets underway at 6 o'clock Wednesday night. Again, that's at Core Brewing's tap room in Springdale. That takes care of us, but again, we have a more complete list of the million and a half music shows going on this week at Ozarks at Large. We're off and running. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The elaborate entrance of Chad Deity slams onto the stage at Theater Squared. This comedy, a mixture of professional wrestling, spectacles, and geopolitical allegory, is on stage and streaming now through May 8th. 777 or theater2.org for tickets and information. This is Ozarks at Large. Fayetteville Opera is back on stage this weekend doing what they do best, staging high-caliber work with a cast and crew of young performers. Saturday night, they'll bring Matthew O'Coin's Second Nature to Star Theater at Walton Arts Center. 
as part of Artisphere. The English language work is described as both dystopian and hopeful. Earlier this week, we invited Tamara Ryan, the general director of Opera Fayetteville, the production's director, Laura Shatkus, Brendan Shapiro, the music director and conductor for Second Nature, and cast members Heather Jones, Imara Miles, Emily Geller, Brian Skoog, and Michael Coleman to the Furman Garner Performance Studio. We're going to hear excerpts of performance and conversation, including answers to questions about the origins of their love of opera, the plot of Second Nature, and how artists can come from across the country to work for just a few days to produce an opera. One of the expectations for opera uh, is that you do so much work by yourself leading up to it. Uh, you learn typically all the pitches and rhythms and uh, everything, all of the musical things by yourself leading up to it. And I think one of the most amazing parts is when you finally put other people in it and realize, oh, yes, this is a team sport. I'll just speak for me that I feel like within the first day or two, I already feel like it's a family. You know, it, it, you know when you're working together in the rehearsal room, it's just... You, you form a different sort of connection than you get to do pretty much in any other part of life. So mm. uh, that's something I really value about this career. So this, the show is already staged. Um, we, we knocked that out in the first couple days. And, uh, and so now it's locking everything together with the orchestra is the next big step. So, so far we've been rehearsing uh, with piano. And once the, the additional instrumentalists show up, then we need to kind of lock in with the conductor and with them and the staging on top of that. And we've got a couple costume change moments and getting that fixed and, and situated for the show. I think the way that uh, Matthew O'Coin, the composer, um, kind of wrote the story with the children as the not protagonist. I think everybody shares importance and in the story and in the plot, but the children kind of lead the action of like what's going to happen. They change the course of the um, the norm in their world, and I think that's absolutely what's happening in our culture right now. Um, young people are. Um, waking us all up to things that need to change, especially having to do with climate change. And, and authoritarianism. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is especially relatable. Like Heather said, I really appreciate the themes on climate change. And I think there are so many aspects that relate to our everyday lives, whether it deals with um, religion or nature that apply to this show. And that's kind of what drew me in this, even before I saw the notes. I think what's so remarkable about this piece in particular 
you know, with most operas, we're looking to the past and, you know, King Henry or, you know, something, Shakespeare, whatever. This is, a, I think, the first piece I've worked on an opera where we're looking to the future and, and not a particularly uh, optimistic one necessarily, at least at the beginning of the opera. Um, and it's just really fascinating, I think, to sort of have that other lens. Um, it's just, you know, it, it makes opera feel a little bit more connected to what you might think of as musical theater and that it sort of brings things more to the present or in this case, the future. So I've really enjoyed that about this process. It's rare that you may say something would say. Just play. And though you are your species' youngest members, and limbs are dying, fires final embers. How nature was dismembered, then remember. I think I came to opera gradually. I think I, I was introduced to all the various sides of it. So first I saw some musical theater, one of, you know, Les Miserables and the stirring music, and that really grabbed me when I was really young, and participated in some theater and played in the band and loved John Williams and rich orchestral music and loved history. And then suddenly you realize, and, and look into the future and technology, and opera somehow combines all of these things. And um, it's just kind of the ultimate. Matthew O'Coin's even talked about this, how he sees opera not in a pretty broad sense, I should say, not uh, in a limited way, where it is about the coming together of all these different aspects. And that's what drew me to it. Similar to Brian, I started with musical theater, um, straight theater, and I wasn't a really good singer, which is like objectively true. I'm not being modest. Um, and um, and I was I was getting like the leads in the straight plays, and we did Shakespeare festivals and improv troops and all all that nonsense. And um, I wanted to get the leads in the musicals, so I started taking voice lessons, and then that kind of tipped everything off. So I was Lois Lane and Kiss Me Kate, um, and that was my junior year, and I think that kind of changed everything. And then Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd, and it just kind of took off from there. I remember there was a line. I wish I could remember the line, but it was a laugh line. And I remember the first time there was an audience and they laughed. And I just looked out into the audience and went, oh, I'm doing this forever. You know, this is what I want. And then my voice changed to this. And uh, so we started singing some opera and it, it went well. So I ended up getting a couple degrees and now it's what I do. To step outside your garden is a hard way to go. But there are things I can show you if you really want to know. Highlights from a visit with cast and crew of Opera Fayetteville recorded in the Furman Garner Performance Studio earlier this week. Second Nature will be staged in Star Theater at Walton Arts Center Saturday night at 8 o'clock. You can learn more at operafayetteville.org. Our guests included Tamara Ryan, who is the general director of Opera Fayetteville. The production's director, 
Laura Shatkus, Brendan Shapiro, the music director and conductor for Second Nature, as well as cast members Heather Jones, Amara Miles, Emily Geller, Brian Skoog, and Michael Coleman. Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with Nina Shaker's piece, If These Walls, written in 2021. Nina Shaker's, born in 1995, is a composer who explores the intersection of identity, vulnerability, love, and laughter to create bold and intensely personal works. Her music has been performed by leading artists, including the L.A. Philharmonic, Albany Symphony, New World Symphony, Civic Orchestra of Chicago, 8th Blackbird, International Contemporary Ensemble, Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, and Alarm Will Sound, among others. If This Walls was commissioned by the Left Coast Chamber Ensemble and premiered by its members, cellist Leighton Funk and Tanya Tompkins. The composer provides program notes for this piece that read, quote, All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put us together again, end quote. Thank you. 
That was Nina Shaker's piece for two cellos, If These Walls, written in 2021, performed by cellist Leighton Funk and Tanya Tompkins. Puerto Rican composer Roberto Sierra, born in 1953, is one of the most well-known composers from the island. After studying with Hungarian-Austrian composer Georgi Ligeti, Sierra found himself re-examining classical genres and infusing them with Puerto Rican rhythms and emotions. In his third symphony, La Salsa, written in 2005, Sierra takes us through powerful Caribbean dances. Let us listen to an excerpt from the first movement, Tumbao, interpreted by the Puerto Rico Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Maximiano Valdez. excerpt from Tumbao, the first movement of Puerto Rican composer Roberto Sierra's Symphony No. 3, La Salsa, written in 2005. I came back recently from a short trip to my country, Colombia. I traveled to say goodbye to my last relative from my parents' generation, my aunt and godmother, La Tia Maritza. While there, I said goodbye again, to childhood memories, places, walks that cannot talk, dances, objects. Somebody Better Today is my tribute to her and our time together. I close Somebody Better with British composer Rebecca Dell's In Paradisum, If I Should Go, from Materna Requiem, a piece composed in 2018 as a tribute to her mother, who passed away in 2010. 
If I should die before the rest of you, break not a flower, nor inscribe a stone, nor, when I'm gone, speak in a Sunday voice, but be the usual selves that I have known. Weep if you must. Parting is hell, but life goes on, so sink as well. Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Pentimeter. Sound Pentimeter is a segment dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. This is Ozarks at Large. Early voting begins Monday for the Arkansas primary races. Roby Brock, with our partner Talk Business and Politics, says the latest Talk Business Hendricks College poll asked voters about preferences in the Democrat and Republican primary races for United States Senate. Well, undecided voters are really going to determine the outcome of both of these U.S. Senate primaries. Right now in the GOP primary, we've got Senator John Bozeman, the incumbent, sitting at 45%. He's under that 50% threshold, but there are enough undecided voters at 18% that he just needs about a third or less of those to get over that 50% mark and avoid a runoff. Now, the big question is, can Jake Beckett or Jan Morgan, who are kind of neck and neck for second and third place, can they muster enough support over the next two, two and a half weeks uh, to bring their numbers up so that one of them's a solid number two? and that they can keep John Bozeman under 50% and force that runoff uh, that could be an all bets are off kind of race. Now on the Democratic side, you've got uh, three contenders for that seat and that nomination. You've got Natalie James, you've got Dan Whitfield, and you've got Jack Foster. They're all polling in the, the teens or below. The big front runner in the Democratic Senate primary is undecided at 63%. Uh, neither of those candidates, uh, none of those candidates that I mentioned have had much money or much focus to get their message out in this campaign other than just the old shoe leather. And that's pretty tough to do on a statewide basis. So it doesn't surprise me that we see kind of a big undecided vote in that primary at this point in time. All bets are off as to what's going to happen there. It's a total toss up. Roby Brock with our partner, Talk Business and Politics. You can find out more about the latest poll from Talk Business and Politics and Hendricks College at talkbusiness.net. And tomorrow on a Friday edition of Ozarks at Large, Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics will help us wrap up another busy news week. And we send off KUAF's underwriting director, 
Rhonda Dillard, to a new adventure. Tomorrow, her last day with us after more than 28 years. And we are working on a story about how all of this rain is affecting Beaver Dam and Beaver Lake and whatever else we have room for tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF and on your schedule with the Ozarks at Large podcast. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A nationally known women's basketball team was based in a small Craighead County town. Formed in 1936 in Missouri, the All-American Redheads moved to Carraway in northeast Arkansas in 1955. Orwell Red Moore was a team owner and coach, and his wife Lorene Butchmore played with the Redheads for 12 years, competing in 2,000 games and scoring more than 35,000 points. The Redheads were known for backhand passing, behind-the-back shooting, and other trick shots while playing men's team under men's rules, winning 70% of their games. They played in every U.S. state and in Canada, Mexico, and the Philippines, and appeared on television on The Ed Sullivan Show and What's My Line. Governor Orville Faubus declared them ambassadors of goodwill for Arkansas. They stopped playing in 1986, but gathered for a reunion game 10 years later, playing the Walmart All-Stars. The Redheads became the first women's team inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2012. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is your public radio station for more than 37 years. KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Flint Creek. KUAF 91.3 is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Timothy Dennis. I'm Kyle Kellams. I think Flint Creek is probably Flint River today. Probably. Timothy produced today's show and today's sound perimeter, and he was instrumental in the recording of Opera Fayetteville. Today's contributors included Paul Gatling, Leah Uribe, and Roby Brock. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. We will be back tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. with an all-new edition of Ozarks at Large. Don't forget, we have weekend Ozarks at Large Sunday morning at 9 here on KUAF. And you can always listen to Ozarks at Large on your schedule with the Ozarks at Large podcast. It's available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and almost every podcast platform. Wherever you get your podcasts, just search Ozarks at Large. In fact, if you get your podcast from a distributor that doesn't have our podcast, please let, let us, us know. know. Yeah, send us an email to Ozarks at Large at gmail.com or Timothy at KUAF.com, Kyle at KUAF.com. We will look into it. Thank you so much for spending part of your Thursday with us. Take care. Be well. Have a great day.